Hey everybody, it is starting to look a lot like Christmas around town and I love it. I love the lights, I love the music, I even love the cheesy Christmas movies on Netflix. I am here for all that stuff. Uh, we decorated the sanctuary last week as a way of kind of getting ready for the season. I have started playing Christmas music in my study, one of my favorite times of the year. And I think that's because some of my favorite uh, and most fond memories growing up were of coming home from school and finding the house totally transformed with Christmas decorations. The way this plays out in my mind, the skies were always dark and gray when my brother and I would get home from school. The nativity set would be out. Uh, the home would be all lit up with candles and Mahalia Jackson singing Oh Holy Night would be on the record player. And in those moments, everything in our little corner of the world, all was calm, all was bright. Advent is a season that Henry Nouwen described as a time of active waiting for the coming king. It's a good phrase, active waiting. It speaks to all of the preparations we have for Christmas. There's no idleness here. It's about anticipation, about peeking to see the light that is just over the horizon. And I think we do all that stuff because waiting is it's just the worst, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but it feels like we have spent an entire year just waiting, waiting to visit loved ones, waiting for a cure, waiting for a hug, waiting for hope. And in its own way, that's what Advent is all about. It's about preparing our hearts to receive the gift that was given in Jesus. Somehow celebrating the King who has come awakens our sense of longing for the time when he will come again in fullness. The word Advent itself means to arrive. We celebrate it in the weeks leading up to Christmas as a way of building up anticipation for the arrival of the child who changed everything and as a way of proclaiming that this new thing that started in Jesus will eventually transform and renew every bit of creation. Advent's also this kind of reminder that we live in that narrow space between how things are and how they're meant to be. And in that way, these weeks before Christmas give us the space to sit and lament that while things now are not the way that they are meant to be, God is nevertheless at work to set things right. The day will come. Though the night is dark, there is light on the horizon. We titled our Advent series, Joy of Every Longing Heart. It's a line from the hymn, Come, Thou Long Expected Jesus. And we've done that as a way of kind of setting aside these days as a reminder that Jesus holds the hope of all creation. From before time began, the Trinity set a plan in motion to rescue and restore every broken thing. At heart, that's what we long for. And so this morning, as we kick off this season of rejoicing in the light that comes in Jesus, I also need to remind you that Advent begins in the dark. And with that, we come to our scripture passage for today 
from Isaiah chapter 64, verses 1 through 9. This is the outcry of an anxious people who are waiting for God to come and set things right. And so friends, listen carefully, for we are reading God's word. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. As when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down and make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no eye has seen, no ear has perceived any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continue to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. Yet you, Lord, are our Father, we are the clay, you are the potter, we are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. And now, Almighty God, we ask that you would come upon us with power, that by your Spirit we may hear what you are saying to the church, and hearing be moved to obedience. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, it's a significant thing that the songs that we sing at Christmas always describe the Savior being born at night. Craig Barnes says that this is because darkness is always the time when we are afraid, when we're most aware of our need for God to be with us. My kids are still the age when every now and then they'll wake us up in the middle of the night and ask us to pray with them. They need to be assured of God's presence in the midst of the dark. Advent always begins in the dark. It begins with waiting for the return of the light. Isaiah's image of the God who reveals himself in fire and in earthquake reminds us that the darkness is always around us. We read about it on health sites that measure the darkness in terms of case numbers and infection rates or in the news, which measures the darkness in bylines. Stabbing in a Wisconsin mall leaves two dead. 
Extremism is on the rise in Europe, a mass shooting at a party in Brooklyn, part of a stark rise in violence in New York City. But the darkness always hits us personally when it's on the other end of a telephone line telling us to rush to the hospital because there's been an accident. Darkness is what a number of young people feel about their employment prospects in the post-COVID economy or of their ability to crack into the housing market. Darkness is what remains after your heart has been broken. We spend a lot of time throughout the day trying to keep the darkness out of sight. We, we work super hard. We get really busy forming these great plans. We even hang Christmas lights to kind of chase the night away. But eventually it comes. It always does. And darkness sets in and our fears, our grief, our anger have a way of taking the reins of our hearts. It's always been like this. At the time of Isaiah's writing, the people of Israel were occupied by the Assyrians who were harsh with justice and heavy with taxes. And having had their land taken from them, many were left in despair, awaiting the heir to David's throne. Well, the occupiers are different, but that's the world that Jesus was born into. A different occupier, same despair. Conquest and captivity had shaped the hearts of the people for generations. Isaiah's prayer of lament came at the beginning of those long years of waiting. The people were aching for their Messiah, for the one who would set them free, to come in power and reclaim their identity as God's beloved. And so the people hoped and they prayed. And waiting turned into longing. Longing turned into desperation. Desperation turned into dependence. Isaiah sums up 500 years with the exasperated prayer, Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. I don't know if you've ever offered a prayer like that, but it's one that really can only be spoken when you are at the end of your rope, when you need God to break in, even if it's dangerous. The people of Israel, they want God to show up dramatically, to intervene just like he had done in the Exodus. If he has done it before, why can't he do it again? It's a question we're really familiar with when hope is hard to come by. I remember in my first couple months of seminary, gathering together with students and faculty for a prayer vigil in the chapel. One of our most respected and beloved professors, Don Jewell, was dying from a rapid and aggressive form of cancer, leaving behind a wife and children. And we were Presbyterians, so our prayers had to be polite. And we were in Princeton, so they also had to be restrained and nuanced to remind God that we were you know, too smart to get our hopes up. Well, then in the middle of the service, one of my friends who was a year ahead of me stood up in tears and yelled to the ceiling of Miller Chapel, where are you, God? Are you deaf? Why don't you heal Dawn? And it got real quiet after that like it does whenever someone drops the pretense and actually has the faith to trust God with the lament of a broken heart. 
Over the last year, we've offered a lot of prayers together. Some of them in this sanctuary. A lot of them huddled up in, you know, community groups outdoors or in homes scattered apart. We've prayed for strength to cope, prayed for unity when things are strained, prayed for a cure and a vaccine or for God to heal directly. Some of you have knelt by bedsides or tried to say goodbye to loved ones. We've prayed for victims of injustice only to offer more prayers for victims of injustice weeks later. And the questions that come are inevitable. If the kingdom has broken in with Jesus, then why do things seem to stay the same? Where are you, God, in the midst of my pain? And why does that pain seem to come so often? Well, these are Advent questions. And God's people have been asking them from the beginning. We know what it's like to pray, oh, that you would tear the heavens open and come down because we know what it's like to stare into the darkness of our own fear and disappointment. And maybe that's why you're tuning in to church today. Or maybe you might be thinking, dude, can't we just sing a little joy to the world? I mean, I don't need to be reminded how rough 2020 has been. And look, I get it. But if we're going to celebrate the joy of every longing heart, the joy that has come to the world so that heaven and nature sing, well, then at some point we're going to have to deal with the reason that Jesus had to come in the first place. That if it were up to us, well, we are utterly powerless to fight back the darkness by ourselves. Notice that Isaiah's prayer begins to turn inward at verse 5. The RSV puts it like this. In our sins, we have been a long time. For all the danger and darkness posed by the nations around them, it suddenly dawns on the prophet that the enemies outside are nothing compared to the darkness hiding within the people's own hearts. That was the darkness that caused them to forget the God who had gone to great lengths to redeem them in the first place. No, the only hope that they have is for the light of heaven to break into their own hearts. And so suddenly this prayer that God would show up as a raging fire meant to consume their enemies is turned into a request that God would come among the people and apply his fire to their unclean lips and their hardened hearts so that the brushwood of their lives would suddenly burst into flames. You can't manufacture Christmas cheer, even if you sing loudly for all to hear. No, if we are going to receive the light that comes, we first have got to learn to sit in the dark. And the hardest darkness to sit with is the darkness in each of us because we spend a whole lot of time trying to convince ourselves that the darkness is somewhere out there and that the darkness that is out there is somehow different than the darkness that sits in here. Here in the first week of Advent, we come to the fact that our best selves are distorted and divided. As Isaiah says before God, even our best deeds are like permanently stained rags. And so finding the hope and the joy of Christmas isn't about looking away from the darkness, but right into it, especially when we see ourselves there, because that is the place where Jesus is waiting to embrace us.
And so instead of, you know, shaking a fist at the brokenness of the world, Advent asks us to lament, to confess our own darkness, to pray that God's fire would come and burn away the darkness from our own cluttered hearts so that we might learn to long for him and his righteousness again. And I find it somewhat striking that in the face of God's silence, Isaiah, he just keeps on addressing him. And I think that's because prayer renews the longings of our hearts. I mean, one of the reasons that we pray and confess each week is to renew our longings. And most of the things that we pursue that harm us, we do as a substitute for what we truly long for. And we, we fill the space with things that never seem to scratch the itch. We, we work too hard. We expect too much from our loved ones. And then we medicate our longings with addictions and obsessions and accomplishments. But in worship, we bring those same longings before God and join Isaiah's prayer to clean out the underbrush so that he can make place for something new. And I think the great irony of Christmas is that we get so used to our longings that we don't even recognize the Savior who doesn't show up in a flash of fire, but instead steals in quietly without a whole lot of fanfare. I think that's the whole reason that in the wisdom of the church, we have Advent in these weeks before Christmas. Because if we're going to see the light that dawns in Christ, we first have to learn to sit in the darkness. If we're going to hear the choirs of angels in the midst of the noisy world, we first have to learn to be silent. But we sit and we wait in the conviction that we've seen God's footsteps. And if we enter into the dark, we're going to find that he's already beaten us to the spot. Being born among us, Jesus experienced the darkness of hunger and thirst and temptation, which means that he knows all about great dreams and laughter and love and pain and betrayal and loss. But he also knows the glory of heaven and the kingdom that shines like a city on the hill will one day flood the world with holy light. The good news that we share at Christmas is that while the story begins in the dark, God's love will not leave us there. Isaiah's lament turns into hope at verse 8. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray for we are all your people. Friends, the joy of Christmas is that God doesn't look on us in our sin, but looks on us as we appear in Jesus. And the one who has experienced every human emotion is not just stumbling around in the dark with us, but has instead come to bring the light. And so make no mistake, the light is coming. It just might not come in the way that you expect. After all, the people who were in the inn next door, busily preparing for the census, probably didn't see anything special in the child who was born in a manger. But the ones who had learned to wait, they found a great star. And they saw the heavens open with angel voices. 
The good news of Christmas is that God does hear his people's lament. And when he finally tears the veil between heaven and earth and comes down, he brings himself, Emmanuel, God with us. And he doesn't bring the fire of his anger to consume his enemies, but instead takes that fire of judgment upon himself. As we come to the table, we remember how when Jesus is crucified on the cross, that veil that separated the people from God is torn in two forever. So that the gifts of heaven are available to those who call out like countless generations before. Come thou long expected Jesus. Christ who poured himself out as an offering on our behalf is both a sign and a promise that God does not look on us in anger and does not hide his face from us, but instead tears open the heavens to look upon us as he looked upon his beloved son. And so as we place our trust in him, we are called to remember and by the power of the spirit to participate in the mystery of his presence in this meal and his presence with us. So as we come, let us pray. The Lord be with you. Now lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered his disciples together and he took bread. And having given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, broken for you. Take and eat. And in the same way, after he'd eaten, he took the cup and he poured it out, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, poured for the forgiveness of sins. Take all of you and drink of it. And so it is that whenever we eat of this bread and we drink of this cup, we proclaim his dying until he comes again in power. Friends, as we receive this meal, let us together proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Come, friends, the table is set. All has been made ready. Amen. Amen.